we uh, we decided to spend a few weeks talking about um, some of the main issues in in uh, the medical halachic field, right? the field of medical ethical, so-called medical ethical dilemmas, issues that require decisions, uh, often difficult ones, from the medical, in the medical world, where the moral, ethical, religious values of society apply. What is the Jewish approach to to these issues? And the one that we are scheduled to speak about this evening is the question of the so-called triage. Very broadly, I'd like to bring it down to a more, uh, more specific areas and try to show you some of the fascination of this, the rich fascination of this area and try to cover as we as we go, the main issues and principles that are involved in prioritizing uh, medical care from a Jewish point of view. And I am well aware that most of you probably are not doctors, um, but I try to show you how these principles are applying beyond medicine and how uh, many general aspects of many other areas of Torah are involved here and see if we can work this out. <coughs> Although we don't normally do this on a Wednesday, I think you should ask questions if something's not clear, because possibly I'll, I won't cover the subject fully, and if there's something that's not clear, you'd like to <coughs> ask if I'm able to answer, I'll be happy to do so. But before we take questions, let me build a picture of some aspects of the subject, an approach to this area, and show you, uh, share with you some of the, the, main, the main features. Now, what I'd like to do with your permission is approach the subject from the perspective of a particular question, a very difficult, uh, very difficult question that was asked by a young young surgeon, and see if we can use that fascinating question to build a, a general picture of the subject. How, how many people here are, are doctors? <coughs> okay, so <coughs> let me share with you a fascinating question that arose. As it happens, this question was raised in my own hometown of uh, Johannesburg although I wasn't there at the time, so I'm not familiar with the specifics of the question, but I'll tell you how it was uh, reported and how it was handled in the halachic world. The question itself is fascinating, and let's understand it and then work carefully through its resolution. You know that understanding all the details of the question is essential because in, in halacha, in Jewish law, the question is always answered exactly the way it's asked which means that a fine nuance, a fine subtlety, a, d- a detail of the question may very significantly affect the outcome. So if then focus very carefully on the way the question was put <coughs> and see if we can understand the issues that lie behind it. The question was as follows. A young surgeon who was working in a department of the a particular hospital in, in, in Johannesburg, in South Africa, was faced with the following dilemma. He was working in a unit there that's known as the accident service. And they have there what's what is generally called the casualty department, which Americans call the emergency room, is um, they're divided into a general casualty department and an accident service which is devoted entirely to surgical trauma. That unit handles only seriously injured uh, people and um, it is geared for that. It's run by one of the surgical teams in the hospital. And in the particular hospital where I believe this question originated, I mean, again, I wasn't there at the time, is a very, very advanced 
and highly organized accident service. In fact, <coughs> we're talking about a major hospital. Those of you who have been there will know that the Johannesburg Hospital is a very big complex. In fact, the building is one kilometer long. In the main corridor on the ground floor, you can see the curvature of the earth. Literally. And at one end of this structure <coughs> is this very advanced um, accident service, and it drains a large area of the country. It has a helicopter service which brings patients in from as far <coughs> south as the Northern Cape. It is a very, uh, it, it's a, you know, a highly uh, slick and skilled unit. Now, this unit had acquired a new machine. <coughs> the machine was some sort of resuscitator, vent, some sort of ventilator, <coughs> or ventilator-resuscitator combination. <coughs> I don't know exactly what the technology was, <coughs> but it was something new, and they had only one. The hospital issued very peculiar instructions. They issued instructions that any surgeon on duty, any accident service doctor on duty, would not be allowed to use the machine in any patient who would be considered to be non-salvageable. Okay? That means, let's just get it clear. 8 o'clock in the morning, you're on duty, right? You're a trauma surgeon. You're sitting there at 8 o'clock on, uh, in the morning, studying your page of Talmud like all good trauma surgeons do. <laughs> and while you're doing that, they're wheeling somebody who's very badly injured. Like all of us doctors are able to do, it takes you two and a half seconds to assess the patient totally and fully and know exactly how long they're going to survive. And with your unerring clinical skill, you, you see that they're not going to survive for more than an hour or two. In fact, we can usually put it down to the second. <coughs> That's what we do. And you know that this patient's not going to survive. Under those circumstances, said the hospital, you may not use the machine. Don't use the machine. Make do with older technology. Why? Because the hospital was con con concerned that if you use this machine on your patient who's not salvageable, shortly thereafter you would probably get another patient who would be salvageable and you no longer have the machine available because it's being committed to the first patient. Why could you not switch it off from the first patient who's not going to survive anyway and put it on the second patient who would survive? Why can't you do that? Well, the hospital said the reason you can't do it is because the family will object. You'll have families sitting around of a very seriously injured patient and you want to walk over to them and say, I'm sorry, your uncle is not going to survive. We're going to switch off the machine. There will be scenes of hysteria, chaos, <coughs> emotion. <coughs> they didn't want that sort of thing. And therefore, <coughs> don't get into that situation. Don't use the machine ab initio on patients who are not going to survive. Hold it off and use it for people who would survive. Now, first of all, before we go any further, you realize that that component of the problem has got nothing to do with Jewish thinking at all. The family's objection in those circumstances is completely irrelevant. When it comes to life and death matters, with some notable exceptions, and if there's time perhaps we can deal with them, <coughs> when it comes to life and death matters, <coughs> the family's opinion <coughs> is not relevant. If we have to save a life, we do it even against the wishes of the family. Right? In fact, when we have to let a life go, because we are not allowed to continue therapy and under certain circumstances, that and unusual circumstances, that is true, we will do it even if the family object. Okay, that's a very narrow range of circumstances. But the family's opinion about <coughs> life and death matters is not relevant. But of course we can rephrase that part of the question in Jewish terms very successfully. We can say that if the first patient is put onto a machine that's keeping them alive, <coughs> keeping them breathing, then you'd not be allowed to switch off the machine, even for someone else, Jewishly, because that's considered killing the patient. Not as a family objects, but because when you switch off a ventilator on somebody who's dependent on a ventilator, we rule halakhically that that's considered an act of terminating the patient's life. Whether it's actionable as murder <coughs> is an interesting discussion. That depends on what's causing the patient to die. That needs discussion. Whether it's actually whether it's actionable as murder. But that's called spilling blood and murdering somebody, killing somebody is certainly true. Even though the intention may be good, it may be to prevent their suffering or use the machine on someone else. <coughs> Therefore, in Jewish law, 
we understand, we rule, <coughs> that you can't switch off a ventilator even if you need the machine for someone else. And therefore, and therefore, we would concur that if you already put the per- first person onto the machine, you cannot switch it off. So let's rephrase the question in Jewish terms. Person A <coughs> is brought into your hospital, <coughs> they're very badly injured, and it's apparent that they're not going to survive. You have a machine that could give them the longest survival in their terminal state, give them the best chance, the best option, <coughs> but don't use the machine. Why? Because if you put the person on the machine, and then someone else comes in, and you no longer have the machine available, you won't be able to save the second life. Now, the way this Jewish doctor put the question was, and again, every nuance of the question is essential, he said that this hospital is so busy that this scenario is guaranteed. Meaning, the place is so busy that I can guarantee you that if the first patient is put onto a machine, <coughs> when the second patient comes along, yes, I can guarantee you that within hours, a second patient will arrive. Now, let's not argue this evening about whether there is such a thing as a statistical guarantee. Okay, in real life there probably isn't. <coughs> but the way halakhic questions are answered is exactly the way they're asked. <coughs> the way we study halakhic material, we always do what the lawyers call ceteris paribus, right? All else being equal. The way we handle halakhic situations is we imagine artificially that all the variables in the scenario are guaranteed and uh, um, uh, transparent and frozen. Okay, even though real life is not like that. <coughs> but the reason we do that is because it's the good old scientific method. When you do a scientific experiment, you freeze all the variables in your experiment with absolute guarantee, and you allow only one to move. Then you can see what the effect of that variable is. In real life, it's not like that. Everything moves at once. But you can never study a principle unless you put it in the lab and you do that. <coughs> Halakhically, we always pretend that all the other variables are absolutely guaranteed and they do not move, and we see what is happening to the one that we shift. Of course, when you go back into real life, you then have to account for all the shifts and doubts and variations, and we have a body of Jewish law that governs that too. All fields are like that. In medicine, the principles that they teach you at medical school are absolutely crystal clear, black and white, there's never a problem. But when you approach a real patient in a real bed, then all of those blacks and whites are swimming in shades of grey, and the skill of 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 the expertise of the practitioner is to weigh up and judge exactly and to tell between those shades of grey. But it's not affect the principle that you could never study the matter <coughs> unless you isolated the, uh, the items in crystal clarity. Cl- and therefore, we are going to assume for purposes of this evening's discussion that there's such a thing as a st- statistical guarantee. Meaning, let's get it clear. 8 o'clock in the morning, patient A is wheeled in. They're definitely not going to survive. That's given. Don't ask me if it's possible to ever know that. We're assuming for purpose of this question that that is for sure known. <coughs> you have a machine. The machine could give the person the longest possible survival. But if you put them on the machine, you are guaranteed, not maybe, you are guaranteed that within a short period of time, an hour, two hours, three hours, somebody else will come in who is salvageable and you won't have the machine. In fact, he said a Jewish patient. Statistical guarantee that a Jewish patient will arrive. Now, let's leave that out of the equation. We've got enough to handle. <coughs> but assuming all else being equal, a guarantee that someone else will arrive, and you will find yourself in that dilemma. In other words, any time you commit the machine to the first patient, you are guaranteeing that within a short period of time, you'll find yourself in the dilemma of a second patient who could have been saved. You'll not be able to save them because you can't switch off the first machine, <coughs> and that is what you are in. Now, the hospital said, therefore, don't get into that. Don't use the machine <coughs> and hold off. <coughs> now, this Jewish doctor was concerned. He said, he went to ask one of the great halakhic authorities of this generation. He asked him, am I obliged to follow the hospital's instruction and withhold the machine from my patient in order to save someone later? Or must I lose my job, go against the system, disobey the hospital's rules, put the first patient onto the machine, because after all, they are here, and the second one is only yet to be, with all the consequences, 
Am I required by Jewish law to do that? Sometimes you have to go against the law of the, of the land in life and death matters. Sometimes you have to, yeah, Jewish halachic material against the law of the land where it's life-saving. Even though there's a general principle that we follow the law of the land. <coughs> in matters like this, we, we, we just certainly do not bend on matters of life-saving. Am I obliged to do this or must I? This was his question. Let's try to approach this <coughs> in an organized fashion from a Jewish point of view. There's a, a very, very great body of information here. Impossible to go through all of it this evening. But let's try to share some of the principles that govern this field. First of all, let's be clear. We're talking about, we're talking about a situation where there's no doubt. Okay, let's get that clear. Um, the question of doubt, incidentally, see, where doubt does apply, then the rules are entirely different. And even then, it makes a difference in what type of circumstance. Again, I'm going to digress a little in this discussion, if you don't mind, just to share with you some of the broad, <coughs> broader angles. You see, when you're in doubt about what will happen in the future, then we always err on the side of what you know, and not on the side of what might happen. And the only exception I can think of to that is in the military situation. You know, in the army, in a war situation, then halakha, the halakhic process, has certain novel features. I'll give you an example. I was present at a meeting of senior Israeli military physicians not long ago, where one of them told us about a colleague of his who had gone into Lebanon with a group of Israeli soldiers, where he was the doctor. He was a very senior-ranking <coughs> military uh, doctor, and he went into this um, action with his soldiers with one paramedic. There was one doctor, one trained paramedic, and the rest were soldiers. Soon after they crossed the border, one of the soldiers was very badly injured. And this doctor said that his assessment of the patients of the soldier's injury was such that if he sent for a helicopter, if he radioed for a helicopter and had the man flown back to Haifa, <coughs> he would probably survive if he went with him. But then he would have to leave the soldiers in the field without a doctor. On the other hand, if he stayed with the man in the field and sent the man back with a paramedic, he'd probably die. And he said he did not know what to do. He was not a religious individual. He's what they call Chiloni, right? a secular Israeli. He said, for the first time in his life, he prayed very hard, and a big helicopter came and took them all. Okay, that's what happened. The point of the story is not the power of prayer. <laughs> the point of the story is... <laughs> the why I'm telling you the story is, <clears throat> because after the incident, they went to ask Rabbi Yashif, one of the great halachic authorities in, in, in Jerusalem, to ask him, what should that doctor have done, in fact, if he faced with this dilemma? Rabbi Yashif said the following thing, in civilian circumstances, in civilian circumstances, he would have been obliged to go back with the injured man. And the reason is absolutely clear. You have in front of you someone who's dying, and in the future, a soldier who may be injured. Whenever we have a doubtful against a definite in Jewish law, we always follow the definite. Here's a dying person who needs you now, and someone who may get injured later. In such circumstances, you go with the person who needs you, and you trust to what will happen later is not just In the army, he said, you stay with the people, you stay with the soldiers in the field. A doctor cannot say, because there the definite dying individual is something that does not stack up halachically. And the reason is, because when you go into a war situation, if it's a mandated, if it's a war situation mandated by Jewish law, then you can't say something's dangerous. You take on ab initio the problem of a risk to life. Do you understand? And therefore, the doubt in that situation is not handled the same as it handled in the civilian circumstance. And this is a, one example. But the default position is that doubt and certainty, the certainty comes first. In our case that we're discussing of our ventilator machine, we are not dealing with a doubt. We're dealing with a statistical guarantee that someone will arrive later. Okay, are we, are we happy with that? <coughs> Let's examine some of the background issues and see where it takes us. 
The question of triage, after all, we're dealing with who comes first here, right? That's what we're dealing with. Who comes first? The patient I have now, who's badly injured, or the patient who I know will come in an hour or two or three? Who comes first? Priorities. The concept of triage is a, an old First World War term relating... Triage means three, right? Gr- gr- grouping into three. What was done in the First World War when there were massive numbers of casualties was the first do- duty of the doctors, the military... Uh, medical facility was to divide the injured injured into three groups. Those who were injured so slightly that they would survive without you. Those who were so badly injured that they would die no matter what you did. And the third group who might survive if you treated them and die if you didn't. And you focused all your energies into that that group. And today it's a well-established part of the practice of medicine. (coughs) It's a triage assessment. In fact, unfortunately, it's very unfortunate, but it's a fact of life that all big hospitals today are trained in disaster management because unfortunately we've seen, we've seen them in, in, in various scenarios and, and the first thing that has to be done at a disaster scene or in a hospital setting when many people are brought in when facilities are relatively limited is to make that assessment of who is the, who, who identify that group that critically needs the treatment and leave the others till, <coughs> till later. So what is the Jewish approach to triage? How do we how do we assess this? Is it the younger person who gets treatment before the older person? Is it men before women? Right? Is it women before men? This part we, we, we're going we're gonna to enjoy, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, who's more valuable, a man or a woman? A younger person or an older person? How do we make these assessments in Jewish law? And do the principles accord with secular law or not? So let me try and go through some of the principles here and uh, <coughs> see if we can develop an approach. Let me point out that triage, selection of, of who gets the therapy, is not limited to the acute emergency situation where people are bleeding and you have only one pair of hands, right? Triage can happen in the d- dramatic situation of <coughs> people dying when you stop at a roadside accident. Right? Do people stop at roadside accidents anymore? I don't, in South Africa, they don't so often now because they worry about AIDS. In America, they don't want to get sued. <laughs> right? in, in Britain, they're probably too polite. The point is that... <laughs> The point is that if you stop at an accident and people are dying, injured, and you have only one pair of hands, you have this decision. But you shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that it's only in that setting. Triage is an issue in a much broader context too. When you run a dialysis program, and you have a kidney dialysis machine, (coughs) and you have more people who need dialysis (coughs) than you can put onto your program, how do you decide who gets the dialysis? In Britain, in the the British Medical Journal, the last time I saw an article on this, believe it or not, the cut-off age for for long-term, for kidney transplantation, for example, was age 62. That means if you're over 62 years old in in kidney failure in in Britain, you get sent home to die, or you get long-term dialysis or some alternative, not because they don't value your life, but because there aren't enough facilities. And age is one of the criteria that is used. In Jewish law, age is not a criterion, all else being equal. Even in America today, which is a land of the plenty medically, there are programs that have to beg other hospitals to take the dialysis patients, right? <coughs> Most of the world, in South Africa certainly, in Israel certainly, there are not enough faci- facilities. How do you make decisions about who gets dialysed, right? The criteria they use, I remember a case of a young doctor in South Africa who was running a dialysis program, a young Jewish doctor, and he was selecting patients based on the normal criteria. For example, a young person gets it before an old person. A person with one disease, namely kidney disease, gets it before somebody with two diseases, namely kidney and, let's say, heart disease. And he suddenly realized one day that maybe these criteria are completely wrong. And what bothered him was this. If you apply these criteria, somebody who's 18 years old, a young fellow of 18 who's only got kidney disease, will be dialyzed before a 45-year-old man, let's say, who has kidney disease and some other problem. But it could well be that the 18-year-old is a single individual and the 45-year-old is supporting five people in a family. 
Well, now, how do you stack up those priorities? It becomes immensely difficult to prioritize these things. How do you begin to, <coughs> to make those assessments? Um, age, generally speaking, is not a criteria in Jewish law. But it isn't only dialysis. What if you're a hospital administrator and you run, you have to decide on how your budget will be spent? Can you spend money on a new well baby clinic where they give vitamins and measure the kids when you don't have enough surgical intensive care beds? And think about it for a moment. What happens if, you're a, if, you, if, you're a govern, if you run a, a budget of a government? Can a country spend money on beautifying its museums and its parks when it may lack intensive care beds, surgical facilities, military facilities? How does a country make these decisions? It's a very broad issue. Now, the Gemara says that if there are two towns on a river and enough water flows in the river, that if the people upstream drink, then there's enough water left for the people downstream to drink. That's the scenario. But if the upstream people will drink and wash, there won't be any water at all, and the downstream people will die of thirst. <coughs> Are the upstream people allowed to drink and wash? Or must they only drink to leave water for their downstream people? The Gomorrah has a very interesting debate about it and concludes amazingly that the upstream people drink and wash, leaving no water at all for the people downstream. So the Gomorrah says, why is that? And the answer is because if they don't wash, there will be an outbreak of an illness among them that may not kill them of thirst tomorrow, but they'll die of infection the day after. And that they may take into account. You see, there's issues here that are not <coughs> as mechanical as you might assume at first, <coughs> at first glance. On a national level, I'll tell you an example. I know of a case where an individual who lives in a certain European country was unable to have children. He and his wife, for a long time, unable to have children. Finally, they ended up at a hospital in Israel where the fertility department of the hospital enabled them to have, to have a child. <coughs> and this man happened to be a particularly wealthy individual and in gratitude to the hospital made a very, very large donation to the hospital stipulating that it should go to the fertility department. The, the director of the hospital said to him, we don't want your money for that. Instead of taking the money, right? He said, no, we wanted, we got other needs. We got more urgent needs. And the man insisted he wanted to give his money to the fertility department. That's where his heart, <coughs> that's what he wanted to do. And the hospital director had a big argument with him and said to him, look, you want to help other people have children. We've got lives already in the world that we need to save. This is immoral of you. Right? Instead of taking the, you know, it reminds me of a story where there was a certain Rosh Hashiva, a certain Rosh Hashiva, right? He was dealing with a certain man who was prepared to give him enough money to build a whole yeshiva. One single donation built a whole yeshiva. But the man stipulated, he had certain religious problems, this man, and he told the rabbi that he would fund the whole yeshiva provided he had a promise. The rabbi promised him that the students did not have to wear kippot. <laughs> they could go with uncovered heads. The rabbi instantaneously agreed and gave his promise, took the money and built a girls' school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He built a base Yaakov, and that's what he did. That's the way to handle the nation, right? That's what you do. Anyway, this hospital director refused. And he said, so the case went to Rabbi Yashif. He they went to Rabbi Yashif to decide. Rabbi Yashif said he's fully entitled to give his money to the fertility department. And they said to him, but there's life-saving needs. Why do you say that? And you have to be a person of his stature to say this. He said, a country needs to know that it has a normal spread of facilities. Morale is an important thing. And for people to think that we only put money into emergencies and we can't put money into normal spread of facilities generates a mindset that is problematic and possibly... You hear this? I mean, you're a very big person to be able to weigh those kinds of things, but this is the issue. So who gets the money? Who gets the facility? This is a very... And you get peculiarities. I remember a case in... A case in Netanya, right? In Netanya, in Israel, there's a hospital called yeah, Laniado Hospital, Laniado. right? <coughs> Which is run on religious, <coughs> religious lines. There was a case there where a wealthy American donated a kidney dialysis machine with a very unusual condition. He stipulated that it was only allowed to be used for tourists. Why? 
because he was concerned that if any American <coughs> was in kidney failure, <coughs> involved on a dialysis program in America, there's no way that he could ever visit Israel. <coughs> because how could he give up his place on a program and come to a country where they're already overloaded with need for dialysis? Who on earth is going to dialyze him in a program that is already fully occupied? So he thought, this is what he'll do. He'll buy a machine, he'll put it into Netanyahu in the hospital, this tourist will visit Israel, every two or three days on his tour, he'll pass through Netanya, spend the night on the machine, be dialyzed, and continue his tour the next day until he goes back to Israel. So what happened was they bought the machine and they put it in, and of course, very soon after it was installed, somebody arrived in kidney failure who was not a tourist. So they went to the Rebbe, the Klausenberger Rebbe, and they said to him, what do we do? He said, Pikuach Nefesh, life-saving, you use the machine. So they put the person on the machine. And now the machine is fully used all the time. Do not ask me what would happen if a tourist and a non-tourist arrived at the same time. Yeah, that priority, I don't know what would happen. But that is... Uh, so you get all sorts of situations. And of course we have it all the time with organs, the supply of organs, who gets the kidney, who gets the liver, who gets the heart. It's a very complicated question. It's, it's a massively <coughs> real and relevant question. Let's go through together some of the basic principles in, in halacha and Jewish law <coughs> that govern this and see if, we can, see if we can work it out. First of all, let's take it from, let's take it from the, the most basic. Let's say you step into a room, okay, and two people are dying, and you can only get, you have only one pair of hands, you can only save one. All else being equal, what do you think is the first thing you look at? Well, the first thing you look... I'm sure you're all thinking of the right answer. <coughs> just want to show off your knowledge. The first thing you do, you look at, all else being equal, is who's physically closer to you? Who's physically closer? Who's nearer to me? And the reason for that is... We have a principle called Ein Ma'avirin Ala Mitzvahs. Ein Ma'avirin Ala Mitzvot. You may not bypass a mitzvah. That means if someone's bleeding here and someone's bleeding there... So, I have to say, this life-saving is incumbent on me. I can't bypass a mitzvah to go to a more distant mitzvah. I'm now beholden in this mitzvah. How can I walk past it to another similar mitzvah? Okay? And therefore, the one who's physically closer, <coughs> all else being equal, the one who's physically closer comes first, you treat them, and then you move on to the other person. Right? All else being equal. There was a case in Hadassah Hospital in 19... This must have been around 1948 or 49... Hadassah in Jerusalem where six or eight children had meningitis and there was only enough penicillin for two. Yeah? It was the early days of penicillin therapy. There was not enough. The doctors went to ask Rabbi Herzog who was the chief rabbi of Israel at the time how do we decide which two children get the, get the penicillin? Rabbi Herzog phoned Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in New York and in 15 seconds he was, the conversation was over. Rabbi Moshe said to him you walk into the ward and you give it to the first two children that you come to. Right? The first two beds, then you've got no more, there's nothing you can do. But that's how you judge. Now, Herzog said to him, what about the Gemara, there's a section that talk, talks about sexual horrors that prioritizes men over women, women over men in certain circumstances. For example, in certain circumstances you save men first. In certain circumstances, for example, in terrorist captivity, you ransom women first. You know that. Yeah, what? Certain circumstances when you can only save, <coughs> right? who do you save first, your father or your rabbi? Question. Who comes first? Okay. Your father, your mother. These are all questions that are dealt with. Men or women, who gets ransomed back first from dangerous captivity? Men or women? <coughs> so there, the Gemara says that women are ransomed back first. Not because they're more valuable, of course, we would never suggest such a thing, but because um, <coughs> not all else is equal. When women are captured by terrorists, they're all, almost certain to be interfered with sexually. Which means that there's not an equal problem on both sides. And that is why women are ransomed back first. The post scheme say that if the terrorists are homosexuals, 
then you are ransoming the man back first, <coughs> because that is <coughs> because that's a greater indignity. You understand? So these are these are issues. However, however, in this case, Rav Moshe said it does not apply. The first two children are the one that you treat, and therefore the basic principle is who is closer. The second principle is: let's say you walk into a room, two people are exactly equidistant from you. One's your brother, and one's a stranger. Who comes first? Your brother comes first. Why? Because, because why? It's family. It's family. Right. Why, why does family come first? Because it's the closest to a person is your family. You're right. You're right about that. And in fact, this law applies in, uh, <coughs> in other contexts as well. Charity, for example, you have to give to a relative first. <coughs> Charity stocker, you have to give to people of your city before people of another city. Although they're not worth more, right? But because you have concentric circles of, of obligation. The reason for this is a verse. The verse says, Mipsacha al tisalem. Mipsacha al titalem. Do not ignore your flesh. Postkim say it also means a friend or a neighbor, not only a blood relative, but a relation comes before a stranger. And therefore, all else being equal, if someone's related to you and someone's not related to you, <coughs> you treat the person who's related to you first. What's the obvious next question? Here, yeah, if you're a Talmudic mind, your mind is already grasping the next question. What's the next question I'm about to ask you? That's exactly the right question. Beautiful. Whoever said that belongs in yeshiva permanently. <coughs> well done. Is the next obvious question is, what happens when your brother is further? In other words, the obvious next question is, which of these priorities has priority over the other? Yeah, what's the hierarchy of these prior- priorities when they conflict? Does your brother come first because he's your relative? Or does the closer person come first because he's closer to you physically? Okay? What's the answer? Brother. The answer is, in this case, your brother comes first, yes. It's one of the rare circumstances where you step over the closer person to get to the more distant one, contravening the principle of who's closer, because your principle of Salem, not ignoring your flesh, takes priority over your obligation not to bypass a mitzvah, and that's what you do. This principle itself has, has interesting ramifications and exceptions. For example, Rav Moshe Feinstein says that whenever you wish to step over someone to get to someone more distant, there's an exception. And the exception is, if the person you want to step over or bypass is conscious, you may not do it. Because when there's a person who's going to feel abandoned, the classic, ex- the classic example of this is where you're bypassing someone, not because they are not related to you, but because they're hopeless. When someone is hopelessly ill, and you therefore <laughs> bypass them, which I'll explain in a moment, to go to the more distant person, and Moshe Feinstein says, you may not do that if the desperately ill person is conscious. Because we rule in Jewish law that feelings of hopelessness, abandonment, despair, pain, anguish, are a- tangible, additive, lethal factors. And that you may not do. So if you're attending to somebody who's inevitably dying, but to abandon them to go and save someone else would give them that feeling of abandonment that you, in fact, may not do. Uh, you can, of course, do it if they're unconscious or would not know. You can, if they're not conscious and would not be aware, then you are, you are uh, uh, moving away. And, but if they're conscious and you would add to their problem by making them feel hopeless, then you're not allowed to do that. What if, what if the other person is your brother and he's... That's what I'm about to deal with. <laughs> so if the person is your brother, but you would make this person die sooner, you're not allowed to do that. No, no you can't do something that adds that, that, that adds to a lethal, a lethal burden. This lowers the question of what can you do to relieve pain? Can you add risk to relieve pain? Can you give morphine or an, an analgesic drug that will relieve the pain of a terminally ill patient when the drug itself may compromise their breathing? Okay? How, much, how do you stack up these? <coughs> what can you give a person that is going... And I'll just deal with this question briefly because it's of its importance. And that is that in the secular world, traditionally, 
uh, pain relief has been inadequately done. It's a, it's, a, it's a specialty in medicine, it's a field in medicine that's often been inadequately addressed and, and uh, taught and practiced, is adequate pain relief. One of the reasons is doctors have been trained traditionally to under-administer, to give too little pain relief, because they're concerned that if they give enough, they may compromise the person's respiratory function and they may stop breathing, and therefore they often let people suffer perhaps more than necessary. In Jewish law, the question is, how can you give pain relief when the risk of the pain relief may be lethal. Again, you see the problem is like this. If you have somebody who's terminally ill, let's say, and they're in terrible pain, why do you want to give them <coughs> the <coughs> you want to give them the morphine <coughs> or some other drug? <coughs> the reason you want to give them the morphine is to relieve their pain. The problem is that giving them the drug may cause them to stop breathing. There's a risk. How can you undertake a risk that's lethal when the reason for the risk is only a symptom? Again, I can give a person a risk if the reason for the risk is to save their life. There's no question about that. But how can I give them a risk when the reason for the risk is not to save their life, just to make them feel better? Maybe the Torah's attitude is suffer. Right? It's better to suffer than do something to relieve the suffering that might kill you. So this question was put to Ramayashi Feinstein, and he has a classic answer to this, which every doctor should be absolutely familiar with. He writes that you're entitled to give, you're obliged to give the pain relief, and accept the fact that it's dangerous, right? even though the reason you're giving it is not life-saving, it's only pain relief. And he says the reason is, and any doctor should know this, because severe pain is not innocuous. It's not just a symptom. Somebody in severe pain, okay, that is a powerful uh, element bringing them down. And therefore, when you relieve the pain, you're not only being humane, you're also, do you understand, taking away something that is part of their lethal burden, and therefore you may accept the risk. Uh, on the contrary, you're obliged to. Of course, there's a number of conditions. When you give morphine for pain and somebody is desperately ill, the first condition is you're giving the morphine to relieve the pain, not to kill the patient. That must be the intention. And secondly, only the most skilled pair of hands around may do this. Titrating exquisitely the, the, the drug against the pain and accepting the minimal, <coughs> most minimal possible amount of risk. This is part of a more general principle that's written in the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, okay, doctors often don't like to hear this, that no doctor may treat a patient if a more qualified doctor is around to do so. General principle in Jewish law, the patient gets the best. No doctor may treat a patient when there's someone more qualified around. Ah, the junior needs to learn, that is not a fact in Jewish law. He, no matter how much he needs to learn, the patients need to get the best overrides. And I would, I would contend that if you let juniors do things because they need to learn, they're learning wrong. Because they're learning that the patient doesn't come first, which is not the right way to practice medicine. And in Jewish law, the most qualified doctor is obliged to treat the patient, not someone less, <coughs> because that person needs to learn. <coughs> there are exceptions to this. <coughs> One of the exceptions is when the most qualified person around is fully occupied, right, and fully utilized, then the next most qualified person around may obviously come into action. Also, a, a junior doctor is allowed to do things when it's within the, completely within the realm of his expertise. In other words, where it's something that he's fully qualified to do, then you don't have to get someone more qualified around. And thirdly, when an action procedure is done under the direct guidance and responsibility of a senior, then it could also be allowed. Okay? But not because it's inadequate, and because um, many of us learned medicine in contexts where part of the process was, called, was known as um, see one, do one, teach one. Okay, many, many serious operations many of us did by seeing one, the next one you did, and the next one you're already teaching. Because we're working in disaster zones where there weren't enough hands, and that was a crude 
and rapid way okay, of learning to do medical procedures. But that, of course, is not ideal, and Jewish law prioritizes the patient's care. Okay, now, <coughs> let's continue. So we got here the following principles. Who's closer to me? Yeah, comes first. Relative comes first. A relative and closer, the relative comes first. Now, let's take the next step. What happens when two people are equidistant and equally related or unrelated, but one of them is a salvageable person and one is not? Okay, we're moving closer to our ventilator case here. You've got two people, for example, <coughs> let's say two people are injured. Both of them are bleeding. In ten minutes, they will, neither one will be alive. But one of them has a problem, that's the bleeding, and the other one has another problem underlying that. For example, they've got a growth, Yes, some kind of tumor, a cancer, for example, and that person is going to live only for three months or six months or nine months, okay? What we call terminal. In Jewish law, terminal is called a year. Okay, in halacha, I'm not going to go into the exact derivation now, but halachically, anyone who will live for less than a year, inevitably, that is called chaye shah, chaye sha'ah, that's called a temporary life, as opposed to chaye oilam, which is a natural, a long-term life, and such a person is called terminal. Now, if somebody is terminally ill, and they would live for three months or six months or nine months, and they now have a problem that is going to take away their life within minutes. And someone else is having the same problem. Who comes first? All else being equal? The salvageable or the non-salvageable? Obviously the salvageable patient, right? So all else being equal, <coughs> the salvageable patient comes first and you are attending to them. Incidentally, <coughs> also important point to know, what happens when the salvageable and non-salvageable are both the same person? Right? Let me give you an example. This is an everyday problem in medicine and of course people in practice have to know this. What happens when a person has a terminal illness? Let's say they have some sort of growth or some sort of you know, process that under these circumstances, a person of their age at this stage of the disease would normally not live for more than a year. <coughs> Let's say the normal, the statistics in their case would say <coughs> that they would survive for six or nine months. We can offer them a procedure, for example, a surgery or chemotherapy or some sort of uh, major therapy, which, if it works, will save their life. Not a year, save their life normally. But if it fails will take away the nine months and kill them during the therapy. Here's somebody who needs a, a radical operation. If the surgery works, they'll live normally. If the surgery fails, they'll die tomorrow morning on the operating table, having been denied the six or nine months they would have had otherwise. What does Jewish law say about that? That's a very tough decision, and it's an everyday decision in medicine. <coughs> when you give a person chemotherapy, for example, marrow ablation and chemotherapy, and uh, marrow rescue, what happens sometimes there is, if it works, you may kill the tumor and the person will live. If it fails, then they'll get some infection during the phase of the treatment and they may get an overwhelming infection and die within a week or ten days and you've denied them the six months or none. This is a fascinating question. I wish there were time to go fully into the derivation. I'll just mention the bottom line. The bottom line here is that uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein rules, and we can't, we, we <coughs> this is the ruling we follow, that in these circumstances, the patient gets to choose. The patient gets to choose. Okay? It's one of the rare circumstances where we agree with secular law. Different reasons, but we agree with secular law. You put the patient the choice. Would you rather have six or nine months guaranteed and see your grandchild's bar or whatever it is you want, and then you'll fade out? Or would you rather take a risk during which you may, if it goes wrong, be, you have no more life, but if it works, live <coughs> normally? The derivation is absolutely fascinating. <coughs> I'll just mention... I don't think we have time to go into fully. I just mentioned that Ramosha learns that it is the patient's right to choose. What happens when the risk is excessive? For example, let's say the risk of the surgery is more than 50%, which halakhically is always considered, right? You know, that, that's considered a... We look at the majority scenario. That means if you don't have the surgery, <coughs> you'll certainly die in nine months. If you do, 
there's a 10 or 20% chance that you'll survive and a 70 or 80% chance that you'll die tomorrow morning. Even there, the patient is fully able, halakhically, to take the option of the small chance of a natural life. In fact, the Gemara presents it in such a way that makes it sound that that would be the correct default position. And I personally asked one of the great halachic leaders of this generation what one should do in the case of a child or an unconscious patient, and he said to me that all else being equal, we would probably take the line of taking that risk, even though there's an 80% chance that they wouldn't. And the reason is the Gemara says that certain death within a few months, we say, we're not concerned about that sort of temporary life when there's a possibility of permanent life. And therefore the patient gets to choose. If it's a child or an unconscious patient, then we try to make the best assessment of what they would have wanted. And this is a case where family members are asked for their opinion about what the person said or would have said. It's one of the rare circumstances where we do in fact rely on the family's <coughs> testimony about the, about the person under most circumstances. Although in most circumstances it's not the case, but in this, in this uh, example we do. So okay. that would be... If the family would have, the doctors would make a decision. Good question. Good, 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 good question. If the doctor is Jewishly motivated and knowledgeable, the default position would be to give the person the risk of a long-term life, even though the chances may be that you will not get that, right? rather than let them certainly die. <coughs> rather than let them certainly die. Again, this is a flexible area, but that would be, the, that would be the, probably the default position. So, this is, the, this is the case. Now, let's take the next step. You have here a person who is salvageable, a person who is not salvageable. <coughs> okay, you can save the salvageable. Now, we're getting close. Okay, stay carefully with me. You step into a room. Two people are both yeah, at serious risk. One is closer. One is more distant. The more distant person is salvageable. The closer one is hopeless. Do you step over the closer one? Excellent question. Person's unconscious, completely so unconscious that they're just completely, uh, almost. Uh, just, what do you do? The non-salvageable unconscious patient, and more distant, you have to step by them, a salvageable patient. What takes priority, closer or life to be saved? It's one of those circumstances where again you step over the closer person. Now here comes the condition that we need to understand well. So focus carefully with me. <coughs> this is not usually appreciated correctly. Listen well. I'm suggesting that we're going to step over the closer patient, right? Why? Because there's a priority that lies more distant, namely a life that can be saved. Whenever you wish to step over something in Jewish law, bypass a law, break the Shabbat, for example, in order to save a life, step by somebody who needs to be saved, we always require one overriding principle. Stay carefully with me. Then that is that the life you're attempting to save must be here now. That's called a chele shilifanenu. A sick person in front of us now. Show me the person. That means, if you wish to tr- break Jewish law, to gain knowledge that will save lives in the future, nothing doing. Show me the life. If you demonstrate to me, show me the person. If the person is here now, then we can bypass virtually everything else in the Torah. Virtually everything else. Unkosher food, breaking Shabbos. Virtually, not all, but virtually all the laws in the Torah. But the condition is, there must be a real person. I'll give you a classic example. Let's say you want to do an autopsy, <coughs> right? Post-mortem dissection, you want to look inside the body. In Jewish law, you may not do that, okay? Because doing a post-mortem could possibly transgress three Torah laws. I'm not going to go now into the background of post-mortems. We can perhaps discuss that when we discuss transplantation and ho- organ harvesting. But there are three Torah laws you transgress when you perform a post-mortem. And therefore, we do not do that in Jewish law. Could you perform a post-mortem to save a life? Yeah. Of course, you'd be obliged to. 
To save a life, I said, we transgress all of Torah law. But there must be a life to be saved. If you want to do a post-mortem to gain wisdom that may save lives in the future, no. But if there's a person whose life could be saved now, a real person, then you're obliged. How, how certain must we be that the person we're talking about is in danger? That's irrelevant. One in a million is good enough. How certain must we be that the information we gain will save them? Irrelevant. One in a million is good enough. But there's got to be a person. Okay? We do not use majorities in Jewish law when it comes to life-saving. We use majorities in virtually everything else. If a drop of milk falls into a meat soup, and the meat is the majority and the milk is a minority, you can eat it. In fact, in that circumstances, if you don't, you consider to be wasting. We use majorities. But in life-saving, we do not use majorities. One in millions will take in order to save a life. So I don't have to be convinced that the person whose life <coughs> is definitely in danger, maybe just possibly dangerous, good enough. And I don't even have to know that I'll definitely save them. Just possibly is good enough. But there's got to be a real person. Okay? Therefore, if someone arrives in your hospital and they've got a disease that no one's ever seen, suddenly they start flashing like a neon light and they get yellow stripes. Amazing illness, right? Everyone's standing around fascinated by this thing and suddenly the person dies. Everyone would love to get their hands on their liver and spleen and see what's flashing and striped. <coughs> Nothing doing. Jewish law can't open them up. You wheel them off to be buried. Suddenly the person in the next bed starts flashing and gets yellow stripes. Halacha says, you go and fetch that first person, you bring him back, and you do a post-mortem now. Why? Because someone else may be in danger, who may be saved if you do this, in- this investigation. You do it right now. But there's got to be a real person. Okay, is this, is this point clear? Right, now. That's the criteria. So you always have to show me, <coughs> okay, a real individual. Now, here comes the catch. Listen well. How far... G- give me a second, give me a second. How far... How close to me is called in front of me? What is Lufanenu? The same room? Same hospital? Same city? What is the meaning of Lufanenu? How close do they have to be to me? Okay, so now let's... So, well, l- 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 like this. The, this point was raised by the Nodi Behuda. One of the great halachic authorities lived in Prague in the 1700s. He writes in, one of, in a famous response that in Lufanenu in front of us, does not mean geographical proximity. It doesn't mean the same room. It means a real present person. They could be in another city, but there's a real, if there's a real person, I did. I'll give you a classic modern example. The classic modern example is, when transplants are done today, in Britain, for example, when transplants are done, and in America today, they are done with a national computer matching program. When kidneys are harvested, if a patient in London <coughs> today has two kidneys removed for transplantation, the doctors removing the kidneys don't even know who's going to get those kidneys tomorrow morning. But they will be matched on a computer, and the next most suitable recipient on the list, and there are many on the list, will get those kidneys. It may be someone in Birmingham tomorrow. But as long as that is considered Lefanenu, I don't even have to know his name, but there has to be an individual, a real live individual, yeah, who is around, whose life may be saved by this procedure, that's called Lefanenu. Is, is this clear? I'm not talking about military situations. In Israel, for example, where skin is harvested to cover burns in soldiers. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about yeah, in, no, in, in, in normal things like this computer matching program, these sorts of situations, post-mortems, etc., we need to have a real person present. And that does not mean in the same room. It means a real person, wherever they are, that we can get it. The case that springs to mind in, in, in this context, I can't help thinking of, is that one of the first times, or the first time, a newborn heart was transplanted. <coughs> a newborn heart. It was done by a Jewish surgeon. Right? It was a case of a baby in California 
where the child was born with congenital heart problem and the child was dying because of this problem. The doctor was a doctor called Dr. Norman Shumway, a uh, Jewish uh, chest surgeon in California. They wanted to try to transplant a heart into this newborn child and you can well aware the most difficult aspect of heart transplantation in newborns obviously is that's no problem at all finding a heart that's the problem where do you find a newborn heart so in this case they tried desperately and they found a child whose heart could be used in Vermont now Vermont is 3,000 miles away from California but what they did was they hired a private jet (coughs) they put one of the junior surgeons on the team into this jet. They flew him across from California to Vermont. He excised the heart of the child in Vermont, put it into a box of cold cardioplegic solution, and they could not get the jet to start. They couldn't get, they had a technical fault, they couldn't. Eventually they scrambled the United States Air Force supersonic fighter. They put this terrified surgeon in the back of a supersonic fighter <laughs> with a heart in a box on his lap. When they got back to California, they had to resuscitate the surgeon. Okay? <laughs> but they did, and they saved the life of the baby in California. That halachically is called Lafanenu. A 6,000 mile r- r- round trip is not the issue. There was a real person, and that justified the... So, the principle clear? Okay, now. Here we come to our immediate question, and we'll wrap it up with this. <coughs> Unless you have questions, I'll be happy to answer. Here's our scenario. Listen carefully because it's the most fascinating question. And if this doesn't move you, there's basically no hope for you. In other words, yeah, if you're thinking of a future in halachic analysis, if you don't appreciate this question, then you should... Um, there's a lot of other provisions I could, I could suggest. Uh, here it is. We have the following scenario. Let me, let me be absolutely clear. <coughs> 8 o'clock in the morning, you are your surgeon on duty, and somebody is wheeled into your hospital, and you see that they're not going to survive. Here's your newfangled machine. If you put it on, it will give them the maximum time. Yes? But you're aware, yes, that that's the situation. You have this machine. Now, as you're about to apply the machine to your patient, suddenly you hear a noise. You look up, and at the door you see they're wheeling in someone who is desperately badly injured, who's salvageable. Do you hold the machine for the person who's at the door? Or do you give it to the non-salvageable patient who's closer to you? You give it to the person at the door, don't you? You wait for them. Why? They're more distant, but they are salvageable. Now, from here to the door called Lefanenu, is that in front of us? Of course it is. So you satisfy the criterion of somebody real being present. If that's called Lefanenu, then you can bypass the person who's closer to you and give it to them. Is that clear? From everything we studied this evening, would you agree that's a conclusion? Right. Case number two. Eight o'clock in the morning, you're sitting there, first patient is wheeled in, desperately badly injured, clearly not going to survive. And there's no one at the door, but as you're about to apply your machine to them, there's a phone call. You answer the phone, and they tell you that there's an ambulance on its way, 10 miles away. In the ambulance is a definitely salvageable patient. Is that called Lefanenu? Of course it is. 10 miles is no problem, right? So you wait 10 minutes, and you apply the machine on the salvageable patient. Scenario number three. 8 o'clock in the morning, person's wheeled in, desperately badly injured, not going to survive. And as you're about to put your machine on, the radio crackles to life. There's a radio call from the helicopter. It's 100 miles away. In the helicopter is a definitely salvageable person. Okay? In half an hour it will be here and you'll save their life. Do you wait half an hour? Yes. Because yes. 100 miles away in the helicopter is called? Lefanenu. Right. Now here comes our question. Concentrate with me. 8 o'clock in the morning, your first patient's wheeled in, desperately badly injured, you're about to put the machine on and there's no phone call and there's no radio call but there's a statistical guarantee that in an hour or two or three, somebody else is going to be here. Is a statistical lefanenu, 
is a statistical lefaneh and you call lefaneh. You hear that question? Again, again. <laughs> Before you answer, you have to be a lucky genius to answer this question. Let's just <laughs> let's just get it clear. Let's just get it clear. <clears throat> I'm not saying you're wrong. So, on the, you see, lefaneh means we need a real person, right? Now, this person, this person is not a real person. Where is this person? This person is presently having breakfast with his wife. He's mumbling at her from behind the newspaper. He doesn't know that in half an hour he's going to run into the back of a truck on the highway and be desperately injured. But he is. He is. And I know he's going to be here. I don't know who he is. No one knows who he is. But he will definitely be here. Is a statistical guarantee. Is a statistical lefanenu. He is here. This person will be here. Not an hour later because the helicopter takes an hour, but because in an hour's time he's going to be injured and brought in. Is a statistical lefanenu called a lefanenu? Because if you say it is, hold off the machine like the hospital says, and wait for the second patient. If you say statistical lefanenu, guarantee, is not, then apply your machine and when he comes in, that's too bad. Do you hear this amazing question? I would suggest to you that the way to think about it, <coughs> in halachic procedure we have a thing called a chakira. A chakira means we delve into the question and cut it with such a fine knife that we take what looks like one principle and, and show that it's in fact two. And I would suggest to you that the way to think about this question is this. What is the concept of Lufanenu? Is the concept of Lufanenu that we need a definite person present or that we definitely must save a life? You see, normally in Lufanenu we have both of those. In Lufanenu we have a person at the door who is real and present and whose life could be saved. <coughs> we never have those separated. But in our case we manage to separate them. We do not have a real present person because he hasn't been injured yet. But we have a life to be saved later. What's the operative principle? Does Lufanenu mean there must be a real person now? present, and if there's not, we don't have to relate to it? Or is Lefanenu the concept that we, 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 we require the definite option of saving a life here? Okay? And what happened in this particular case, let me finish by telling you the resolution, is that the, the halachic authority who was consulted ruled for this young surgeon that the hospital is correct. He said, in my opinion, and you see, what I want to get across to you here is that although there may be major halachic differences in approach to a question like this, they turn on a hair's breadth of judgment. Because the authorities asked this question, and more than one was asked, although they differed in their answers, <coughs> right? In fact, three authorities were asked this question, this, this yes or no question, right? The hospital right, the hospital wrong. And in, t- and in predictable Jewish fashion, there were three completely different answers, <coughs> not halachically. Yes, no, and something else. And I'll tell you what they were. But... What I'm trying to show you is that this yes or no question in a life-saving matter turns on the hair's breadth of a question of judgment. Is a statistical guarantee of someone being here as good as they're being here, or is it not? And on that question of refined judgment hinges this whole question. Okay? So the authority was asked this question, a major halachic figure. He ruled that the hospital, in fact, is correct. Don't risk your job, don't give up your job, hold off on the machine, use all the technology, and when the second person comes in later, have the machine available, and that's what you do. And of course, that's what the surgeon did, <coughs> because he's the person he asked told him to do so. However, this great halachic authority sent the question to two others. To two others, to see their opinion. One of them was the great halachic masters in Jerusalem, and he ruled exactly the opposite. He said, in his opinion, that's not called lefanenu. You use the machine now, despite what the hospital says, and when the second person comes in later, you deal with him as best you can. You don't have to relate to somebody who's not even injured yet. And the third answer was fascinating, and I'll commend it to your consideration. Now, don't you have to accept it if you don't want to. <coughs> was the answer of another authority, happens to be Rav Zilberstein in B'nai Brak, Rav Yashiv's son-in-law. He suggested the following option. <coughs> Listen carefully, because it's very clever. He said, what you do is, you take your newfangled machine, and you attach to it a time clock 
and a bell. Now what happens is this. At o'clock in the morning, the first person gets wheeled in, right? You, without thinking, right away you put them on the machine. The machine works for half an hour, switches itself off, and rings a bell. As soon as you hear that, you walk across, or the nurse walks over, she resets the machine, and it carries on going. Half an hour later, it switches itself off, rings its bell, you go and switch it on, and you keep going thus. When your second patient comes in, yes, badly injured, all you do is wait until the bell rings and the machine switches off. And instead of restarting it on the original patient, you restart it on the new patient. Now, whether the Johannesburg Hospital would appreciate Shabbos clocks on its ventilators, <laughs> okay, I don't know. <coughs> but that is what his suggestion was, okay? Are there any questions on the subject we covered this evening? If there are any related questions that I'm able to, I'll, I'll be happy to try to answer. Next week's session, we'll continue with other. <laughs> Right. We do not cut up bodies for medical education. However, in non-Jewish countries, non-Jewish countries with non-Jewish bodies, where they do that, we don't just step in and change their approach to, to these things. They're not our obligation. But we wouldn't do it to Jewish bodies because that's our law. <coughs> there are Jewish authorities who say, there are halachic authorities who say that a postmortem is forbidden on a non-Jewish body too. Okay, and the reason for that, <coughs> it's not a majority opinion, but there is an opinion. The reason is, because they say the prohibition of a post-mortem is because the body is created in Hashem's image, in the divine image, and non-Jews are created in the same divine image. Therefore, you can't desecrate either of them. That opinion holds that the same prohibition applies to non-Jewish bodies too. Okay, there are differing opinions about this. Therefore, the real, the real problem is in Israel. Okay, that's where the real problem is. Okay, in Yeshua next week, we'll continue with another aspect of, of the subject. Thank you.